You're listening to I'll Have What She's Podcasting, a film and pop culture podcast hosted by Louise Oliver and Jackie Farmer, two tired feminist millennials giving you opinions you didn't ask for about the content they love. How's your sense of smell? It's back. Good. It's back. Um, I got coffee back, which was very exciting, and then I got the litter tray back, which was, you know, <laughs> COVID giveth and COVID taketh away. <laughs> um, so this is a very, very special episode of the podcast. I'm excited. Very excited today. Mm-hmm. Why are we excited, Louise Oliver? Well, Jackie Farmer, I'm excited because it's not just you and I. As much as I love it when it's just you and I. Sometimes it's good to explore other people. Get different perspectives. Yeah. New opinions. People who know more about what they're talking indeed, about. Indeed, or indeed do. anything. Anything at all. <laughs> uh, we are very, very excited to welcome to the I'll Have What She's podcasting family, uh, filmmaker, director, writer and all-round good guy, Paul Barry. Welcome, Hi, Paul. Paul. Hello. Thank you for the lovely introduction. <laughs> very nice of you. We're thrilled to have you here. Thank you for being here. You're very welcome. It's good to be here. So because we're very polite, nice ladies who were mm. brought up right, we decided that when we have a guest on the podcast, we will ask them to choose the film. Yeah. So Paul has chosen a film. What have you chosen, Paul? I have chosen Brian De Palma's 1976 film, Carrie. What a belter. Such a good one. I'm very excited about this, actually. I feel like I have so much to say. And I'd like to say up front, I have not made any notes, but not because I haven't studied. Nobody said anything. (laughs) Nobody said anything to her about this. I'm just getting out in front of it. That's all. I'm just getting out in front of it, okay? So, Paul, why did you choose this movie? Well, because I'd watched it... And then you asked me what film would I like to do? (laughs) And I thought, well, that's a good one. And it was around Halloween. I wasn't sure when we were going to record. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting film because... So Brian De Palma can be quite contentious. Okay. You know, with the the, the male gaze and all of that. And, you know, with you guys, it's a... I've just misgendered you. But with... Uh, you know, I mean, with, with a feminist film podcast, it's an interesting one to kind of unpick as well. And mm-hmm. it's just a really, really tremendously, wonderfully made film. It really is. I really enjoyed it. Okay, so Brian De Palma. So I first saw this film when I was about... I was a little bit younger than the characters in the film and mm. much younger than the actors in the film. <laughs> uh, I was about 14 or so. And I, I might be misremembering this, but I think it was shown on a programme that used to go out on Friday nights call on BBC Two called Movie Drum, which had been hosted by Alex Cox, the director, and was later direct, uh, hosted by Mark Cousins. And he would introduce the film and then show the film. It was all these kind of cult movies and stuff. And it, it that age kind of really resonated because I think one of the great things about Carrie, the film, is... Although it's, and we'll dig into the period, um, and I don't mean the menstruation period. <laughs> but, but the, the, the Although of, we will get into that. We will definitely have to yeah. t- at least touch upon it. The, but, the, you know, the, the hair and the fashion and the, the mm. music and all that's very 70s. But it's quite universal at the about school, the high school experience. Mm-hmm. You know, so it really it did kind of speak to me at a young age. And Brian De Palma is, he's clearly enthralled to Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's a great formalist. He's a great... We'll, t- we'll dig into it as we start talking about the sequences, but he, unlike, say, a lot of your sort of new wave directors at the time who were kind of run-and-gun type things, everything's planned to perfection. There's nothing in a Brian De Palma film that's there by mistake. 
Right. He made a film called Snake Eyes that has like a 15 minute, 20 minute uninterrupted camera sequence. Is that a Nicolas Cage film? Yeah. Okay. It's utter bollocks, but <laughs> the, the, the opening sequence is worth seeing. What else has he done? He, made, he started making films in the 1960s, the late 1960s. He did Robert De Niro's first couple of films. I've not seen a lot of his early stuff. His first kind of breakout was a film with uh, Margot Kidder, who, ah. the great Margot Kidder, mm-hmm. who, who played Lois Lane, mm-hmm. uh, and wonderful actor. Uh, she called Sisters, which was a kind of low-budget horror film that did pretty well. He made a wonderful film called Phantom of the Paradise, which is like a precursor to Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. You know, it's similar kind of thing to Rocky Horror. Weirdly a cult hit in Canada. Hmm. Like massive cult hit in Canada, the way that Rocky Horror is was in North America. Interesting. Is and he had did he not have Betty Buckley read for that originally? That's how he came to sort of audition Betty Buckley. That's how I Very possibly because she's she's quite musical theatre. She's musical theatre, yeah. yes. She was the first Grisabella in Cats. Right, okay. And also played uh, Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard, but that's for a different podcast. Oh, she'd be good. <laughs> and also just good. in case anyone listening to this hasn't just been pouring over IMDB like I have for the last week and a half, Betty Buckley plays a character in the film Carrie. <laughs> Called Miss Collins, in case anyone needs the link. She plays Miss Collins. Yeah, she does. She's got the second best hair in the film. Also, here's a fun fact Betty Buckley was Carrie's mother in the Broadway presentation of Carrie the Musical. Now, I think on one of the old DVDs, there was a feature on on the musical, which obviously I've never seen because I don't think anyone's seen it. No one's seen it. I think it ran for like eight shows or Mm -hmm. something. But Uh, at this juncture, I feel like I have to shout out a podcast called Out for Blood, hosted by the incredible Holly Morgan, who we have interviewed on our sister podcast, Persistent and Nasty. She has a podcast called Out for Blood, which is a serialization of the development and ultimate catastrophe that was Carry the Musical. So if you are enjoying this podcast, you may also enjoy that one. Anyway, please carry on. That sounds great. You both would love it. It's so good. Well, so Phantom of the Paradise, Louise, if you've not seen it, you would love it. Okay. It's It's a campy horror rock and roll musical. It's very, yeah. it's very you, um, <laughs> and it's great. It's, I really like it. The songs aren't as catchy as Rocky Horror, but it, it's good. And then he made a film called Obsession, which was very, very inspired by Vertigo, a Hitchcock film, which is okay. And then there was Carrie, and subsequently he made some great films. He made uh, Blowout, is an excellent film, also starring John Travolta and Nancy Allen. Dressed to Kill, which is problematic. See, these are the films where we're sort of like you mentioned at the top that he's got a bit of a controversial or contentious reputation for violence and violence against women Some, and stuff like yeah. that. But th- it, that seems to be post Carrie because actually rewatching Carrie recently, I was like, this is very, it's very not that. It's very, it's a, he 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 handles it with quite a, I feel a great deal of care. Some critics have accused him of misogyny, uh, not not in his Which personal is, life, yeah. but but through his films you can absolutely yeah. see that. And that's a valid. Mm. But there's there's a whole swathe of other critics and feminist critics who completely disagree with that. You know, as a as a white cisgendered straight guy, I'm I'm not getting into that one. That's it's no, fine. It's not really my place to get into you that one. You can say hard pass if yeah, you like. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'll, uh, I'll plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> uh, but I mean, Dress to Kill is problematic because, without giving away too many spoilers, the killer is a trans woman mm-hmm. in the story, which there's a whole trope. You see it in Silence of the Lambs was picketed mm-hmm. for it. Uh, Psycho, arguably, as well, mm-hmm. which another 
Hitchcock film that De Palma's seen once or twice. <laughs> but if you can get past that, it's an incredible bit of filmmaking. It's really good. And Michael Caine is fun in it. <laughs> He's having fun in that movie. I really like Dress to Kill. Later on, he did, he, so he directed some more mainstream non-thriller films. He, he made uh, Scarface, mm-hmm. uh, which flopped, but is now regarded as a classic. Mm-hmm. His big hit was probably The Untouchables, which is, is a good movie. Won some Academy Awards. Carlito's Way was his other gangster picture, uh, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other sort of big mainstream film that he made was The First Mission Impossible. Oh, I didn't know that was him. I didn't know that was him either. Mm-hmm. So kicked off a huge franchise. Yes, he did. He really Gosh. did. And not the worst one in the franchise. That would be the second one. <laughs> oh, I've got a soft spot for the second one. Really? I do, yeah. yeah. I went to see it in the cinema uh, with my mum and brother, and then I went to see it again with my pals, and we got really into that Metallica single, I Disappear. That's that right. And the Limp Bizkit right. one as well. That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So that's that's Brian De Palma. He has slowed down. I think he's struggling like a lot, much like a lot of his contemporaries from the seventies. Apart from Scorsese, he's struggling to get stuff made. Mm. He's made a, he's made a couple of films in the last decade. I've not seen them. It's really interesting. I because like on rewatching it, I was like had all of that in my mind because like particularly Scarface and 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 Dress to Kill. I was sort of like I have this guy in my head as somebody who's quite violent, has a certain type of style or not style but like I don't know I think there was something I think I want to talk about the opening scene because I think mm-hmm. the opening scene of Carrie is one of those ones where it's probably the, the scene that when you're talking about male gaze yes. is, yeah. is the easiest way to show people what you mean by what that what you mean by male gaze except yeah. for the fact rewatching it as a 37 year old woman who has had mm-hmm. a lot of education around what that means when we talk about the male gaze I actually thought it was really beautiful Mm-hmm. It's yeah. really beautiful. Like it's sort of yeah. I, I don't know. I, I went through this exact thing. So an actor friend of mine, she'd asked me for a list of horror films to watch over Halloween, and so I'd written up a list of list of horror films, and one of them was Carrie. And one of the things I said was a little bit male gazy. You know, f- full disclaimer: a little bit male gazy, particularly in the opening shower scene. And then I watched it, having not seen it for three or four mm. years, and went, I might have called that wrong might have called that wrong actually i don't find this problematic at all it doesn't it's not uncomfortable to watch it it's really not is it's, it it's nice and it's also like there's a it's not like any changing room i was in as a teenager where most of us were trying to not be looked at but actually they all look very comfortable and mm-hmm. very free it's not male gaze they're not posing yeah they, i think relaxed. that's quite key and it's misty and it feels like there isn't a male gaze in the room yeah they're comfortable yeah and the music goes along with that because it's, it's very, very dreamy beautiful and dreamy and yeah it's like it's like i said earlier on there's nothing in a De Palma movie that's there by mistake so if we if you watch the opening sequence we start from a god's eye view so we're above the the what's that sport volleyball, volleyball. oh yeah. that's a good point and one of the actors i was uh, i can't remember which one whether it was a uh, norma or sue wanted to very like was vociferously pointing out like everybody refers to the naked scene in the locker room as the opening scene but it's not it's the volleyball scene <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we, we open on this sort of a bird's eye view or a god's eye view and the camera cranes down onto Sissy Spacek's Carrie and we hear the very obviously looped lines of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pass it to Carrie, she'll, she'll mess it up and all that kind of stuff. And then we enter this, you you both mentioned it, dreamlike mm-hmm. sequence. And it's dreamlike as we the camera 
moves through and there's this steam and it's all in slow motion as well which gives it that kind of dreamlike quality which we'll come back to right at the end of the film because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it kind of mirrors and then we push in on the shower and she's there in the shower but when what happens happens and we'll get to that in a minute we immediately rush into real time mm-hmm. you know we speed up and that snapping out of the dream is i think the purpose oh certainly the way i i, I take the purpose of mm-hmm. That. And someone mentioned the score as well. Pino Denagio's score is very beautiful. It's sort of flutes and strings and it's very romantic and lush. And that kind of brings you into this soft kind of dreamlike feeling to it. So that when Carrie gets her period and all of a sudden panics, it, it, it really drives home the horror of the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The music stops as soon as she. It's not as soon as you as we see the blood, it's as soon as she realises there's blood. Yes. Yeah. It's intense. Mm-hmm. It's like I had a really visceral reaction to watching it the other night, like because I it had been a while since the last time I'd seen it, and I was like, "Well, oh, this is horrifying. Like, this mm-hmm. is really." And when you when you really kind of absorb the impact of what's going on here, she doesn't know what's happening to her. Yeah. And there's something about in the realization of that moment between all of the girls as we pan through the locker room they're all together they're mm-hmm. they're like a little tribe and they're laughing and they're naked together and they're comfortable and then she's isolated alone in the shower having this moment and there's just something so horrific when she reaches out to them for help because she mm-hmm. doesn't know what's going on and is rejected that i feel it in my gut it's, it's horrible just awful that's when you talk about it being a horror movie that scene is probably the most the thing closest to horror for me all of yeah. it it's the just horror of mean girls the horror mean. of mean mean <laughs> girls you don't understand paul <laughs> no I, I and i wouldn't pretend to but, but it's the great thing about about the the film and the story is it, it is set in that zoo that is high school mm-hmm. you know uh where being even slightly different is you've got a mark on you and so many people are scarred by these experiences and that's really what the film explores but that scene i think you're right is probably the most horrific because it's it's mob justice or it's you know it's the braying mob they all kind of get carried away Mm -hmm. and it's really really horrible Mm -hmm. and that's again it's punctuated by how gently we've been brought into the film with that the the beautiful kind of camera work and the score and all of that and then and then what happens Mm -hmm. i think brilliant it really is and it's um although i was just like i must have really repressed all of my high school experiences because like part of me it was like felt everything that was going on in that scene very viscerally but at the same time it's like surely you can't get away with that you can't behave like that like this is just ridiculous like, you had that reaction to the bullies and hocus pocus as well though as well. Like, you can't just take someone's shoes you can't just take someone's shoes you can't just pelt someone with sani pads you can't just do that and then Miss Collins is like trying to get in through them all and she can't mm. move them. Like they're just like unfazed by the fact that a teacher's there, which is absolutely not the way I would have reacted. I'm like, it's yeah. a teacher here. What's great as well is that uh, Sue Snell, the character of Sue Snell, who's played mm-hmm. by Amy Irving, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when Miss Collins says to her, Sue, what are you doing? And she snaps out of it and she yeah. straight away goes, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can see her regret it. Because she still has the wee wee nervous laugh where she's like, she just got her period or something. She said, Uh like, you know, she was freaking out. And yeah, she goes from mirth to, and like, giddiness to, like, oh no. Absolute shame. Yeah. Yeah. 
which is which is the the driving force behind her behavior for the rest of the film yeah and it's played really well mm-hmm. i like how uh slap happy miss collins is <laughs> oh my gosh miss collins is my hero <laughs> she yeah. is she's got fabulous hair she smokes fags in the principal's <laughs> office and she wearing, and she's wearing her tiny little shorts in the principal's office and smoking her fag and just uh, being like, like i love yeah. the, i love the look that the principal gives to the blood stains, the blood stains on, yeah. yeah and yeah. it's very it's, it's that kind of like if you need out of class you say you've got lady problems yeah. kind of thing like he was like, "Deal with it." Yeah. Do you want to go to the infirmary, Cassie? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know. Do you need a ride home, Cassie? Yeah. No, she's great. Although, again, it's the the, the willingness to just belt a child around the face. Yeah. Uh, a menstruating child in the shower <laughs> around the face. The um. So I read the book last week, and the book actually does explain a little bit about what what's going on in everyone's head in that scene, which is just that kind of with the girls. It's a bit of like when you've got the kid at school who's a bit weird, and as adults, and like the the better kids, I think at school, it's like they're just having their own experience, let them live their life. But there's this thing that society has that Stephen King writes about really well in the book, which is almost like a an instinctive annoyance at someone who won't just be normal mm. and how that causes every type of prejudice that we have as people. But there's that kind of... It's, it's almost like you... It's not that they hate Carrie in their day-to-day lives, but they just it's it's such an affront the way she reacts. And she and Miss Collins says something to that effect when she's in the principal's office. She's like, you know, I I the worst thing is I know how they felt. I just wanted to take her and shake yeah. her. But the reason she slaps Carrie is because she thinks that's what you do when somebody's being hysterical. Yeah, it's quite relatable. Yeah, it is actually. It's the, but it's not the only time she smacks a child. No, but <laughs> again, also the next time she smacks a child is also quite relatable. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> it's just there's something you feel it in that moment when she gets into the cubicle and Carrie is still just losing mm. it I, I completely I can tap into that both through her performance and exactly what you've just said which is that why don't you know about this mm-hmm. so when it transitions into the next scene with the principal's office and she brings up her mother that's a perfect moment for that to happen because she's like I'm so what, like calm the fuck down what is going on you, this is normal and then kind of it clicks into place and she's like oh right okay mm-hmm. this isn't normal for yeah. you and also because she's of what's very late been, yeah, yeah she's a late bloomer and it's like this isn't normal for you because of what's happened to you and what you're subjected to which I presume Miss Collins only has a rough idea of although I, this is we're going slightly on a tangent here but I did read recently that so first periods so she's meant to be 17 in this mm-hmm. which would be not unheard of now but very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Far less rare in the 70s. It, all right, okay. Really? Part, I, well, something popped into my head while I was watching it that I wouldn't be at all surprised, and it's been a really, really long time since I've read the book. I can't even really remember if this comes up in the book. Maybe it does, mm-hmm. Jackie. Uh, where I thought I wouldn't be at all surprised if Mrs. White is doing something to Carrie to delay her period, either through nutrition yeah. or, yeah. like... Because there's this um, amazing book called Bring the Daughters, Bring Out the Daughters. I'll fact check that and put it in the show notes because I can't remember the name and the title of it properly. And it's basically about that. It's about how there's these people who live isolated on an island and the the, the daughters, the women of the island, are allowed to be feral, basically, until they come of age. And when they become of age, then they're fertile and they get basically put through the machine of being wifed and used for reproduction so some of them start to work out how to delay right. okay. their period coming on through 
either just not eating or yeah. um, overt exercise. It basically stresses upon the body that delay it. Mm. And that popped into my head when I was watching the movie because, as you know, it comes up later in the movie that she hasn't told her about this. And then yeah. when, when Carrie comes home and is like, you should have told me, she's mm-hmm. like, this is the first sin. And yeah. you're now, you know, you're a woman now and that makes you even more evil mm-hmm. so I don't know just occurred to me as a thing uh, well I've got two things on that so firstly in the book there is nothing about Margaret hasn't done anything specific to, she hasn't done anything like been slipping or like hormonal imbalancers or anything I don't know what if those exist but um, if, there, if there's a thing you give people to put their period off I'm sure there is but she's not been doing that but I also looked up because I was trying to find out if there was like our kept world record of the latest person to ever start their period and they're probably and I couldn't find one might be one but it just took me to a lot of NHS calm down <laughs> websites <laughs> about like trying to calm down teenage girls whose periods haven't started but all their friends have oh my god so it was like don't worry if you haven't started by your by the time you're 16 just go to your GP and they'll just check you're okay and they're good wet there's really good information out there but there were some bullet points about these are reasons why they might start late and it can be sort of like hormonal things or malnourishment which in the book Carrie doesn't have but I, I was wondering in terms of why it might have started late she is probably bloody stressed all the time yeah mm-hmm. that's a really good point so it could be just yeah. she spends a lot of her life in a cupboard yeah. and she's infantilized to a point where it's mm-hmm. like but she's terrified of problematic. Mom. She's terrified of the world and terrified of her mum. So yeah, actually, and her mum is fucking mental. Oh, though. her mum mm-hmm. is a. F- oh but, my god, what but, a roaster! Before we move on from the opening segment, I just wanted to bring this up because <laughs> we've not even moved. We've not even got past this. The is quite. This is yet. quite normal for us. Yeah. So, I on the if you like the film, I recommend Arrow Video did a, a Blu-ray release uh, of the film. Or if you listen in the states, I think it's Shout Factory, basically the same release beautiful 4k remaster of the film and it looks it it really does look stunning but one of the extra features on it is the tv opening right so this wasn't uncommon you've got to remember in the 1970s nudity on screen was still quite new Mm -hmm. that was that was fairly new you know hair the musical debuted like eight years before carrie we're still there was something quite transgressive about the naked form on screen at that time and but the other thing is there was no home video, so the revenue stream after theatrical release was television sales. If you've got full frontal female or male nudity, not that many films had full frontal male nudity, mm-hmm. but that was going to be problematic. So it wasn't unusual for them to shoot alternate scenes during the production. So there is a version on this Blu-ray of the opening sequence of Carrie with the nudity removed. So they just reshot that opening pan in through the thing. But the girls that are they're naked or partially naked are covered up. Didn't really make much of a difference to the sequence. Where it did make a difference is once we get into the shower. Mm-hmm. Once we get into the shower, because I, th- I don't know, and this is, again, the male perspective on it. So there's a caveat to that. But the film is about coming of age and femininity and, you know, all of that kind of thing. It wasn't as effective without mm. the level of nudity that's that's in the, the shower sequence. Oh, so no, how I, do I they do it? In the, how do they do it with Carrie? Is she, do you just not see her? They, they focus on the on the midriff okay. and the legs. Oh, okay. Basically, they cut out the nipples. Okay. Essentially. I think there's something to be said for, like, there's nudity has its place in some 
films like like in scene in some scenes and some bits of writing and i think this is a bit of writing and a bit of filmmaking where it absolutely has its place it just yeah. doesn't feel gratuitous in this no it doesn't yes. feel gratuitous and it's i think it's required for the vulnerability that mm-hmm. is needed to really kick us in the gut yeah it's a lot more like, innocent than it is sexual yeah i at no point does it feel sexualized mm-hmm. to me no it doesn't um, feel sexy or sexualized to me either You've got to remember as well, so De Palma is enthralled to Hitchcock and he's at his best when he's riffing on Hitchcock. The shower scene before Carrie that everyone remembers is the shower scene in Psycho. Mm-hmm. The shower scene in Psycho works so well because of the vulnerability of Janet Lee. I, I mean, there's many reasons why that sequence works well, but the vulnerability of Janet Lee's character in that moment, she's completely naked and then in comes Mrs. Bates. Um, spoilers. You know. <laughs> or, or is it Mrs. Bates? <laughs> uh, it wouldn't hurt a fly. But, uh, yeah, so he's possibly touching on that. And it's interesting, if you watch Dress to Kill, which, if you like Carrie, go and watch Dress to Kill, with the caveat that it's slightly problematic. It's mirrored at the start of Dress to Kill. There's a shower sequence very similar to the shower sequence in Carrie, where the main, well, the main-ish character is in the shower indulging in a sexual fantasy and it's a wee bit more graphic than Carrie because it's a few years on from Carrie and they had more of a budget for body doubles I think but just it is interesting that when you remove some of the nudity it is actually less effective yeah um, there's maybe quite a good litmus test for when nudity is not gratuitous if you ever yeah. needed one it's just I think I, I for me it just adds to the we're building up to what's about to happen and it and it mm-hmm. and it just adds to how horrific that then is mm-hmm. it's so awful sissy spacek does an incredible oh, job of being deeply traumatized by her period coming on like it, she's traumatized mm-hmm. it's really as you would be as you would be i think we all were like i knew it was coming and i was still traumatized i actually <laughs> did start my period quite late me too so i had a bit of a me thank- too oh how about you paul I'm still waiting on it. I'm 37, <laughs> and I'm still waiting on it. At least you're well prepped. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I buy the tampons quite often in my house. Good. Well, we'll so make I've got sure plenty. that we, when it happens for you, we will come round to your house and pelt you with them. Oh, thank you, you're thank welcome. you. Plug yeah. it up. Initiation. <laughs> plug, plug it, it up. right up. Yeah. Plug it up. Um, how old were you? I was 15. Uh, about the same. Yeah. 14. That's 15. interesting. Yeah, and it was. Uh, it wasn't that I wasn't expecting it, but it hit me like it hit me like a Mack truck, which is apparently the direction that Brian De Palma gave Sissy That's right. Spacek. Yes, I remember reading that. It hit me like a Mack truck, and I was very like ill and like oh, like I had to you know like a Victorian waif mm-hmm. I had to take to take to my room for days. I can yeah. believe that. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was having dinner at my grandparents' house. Oh really? Brutal. Yeah. And I went to the loo, and <laughs> and my grandparents like they knew what a period was, but they weren't grandparents I would necessarily have spoken to but I wouldn't ever have like my grandpa wouldn't have been like oh grandpa I'm on my period he's not he's a lovely man but he doesn't want to know about your period but I kind of had to wait till they were doing something and just be like mom mom my period <laughs> <laughs> just like okay but she's smoking a fag and then smacked you around the dish yeah. like calm yeah. down <laughs> calm the fuck down yeah. <laughs> we'll go out we'll have a fag it'll be fine yeah, yeah. Should, uh, should we mention just at this at this stage, just how incredibly brilliant Sissy Spacek is throughout this movie. Oh, she's oh my so god! Good. Oh, she's amazing. And was not by any means the first choice for the part. I read that. Yes. Uh, you know, you know me. I like to do deep dives on how mm. actors feel about things. <laughs> 
And apparently she was like so not the first choice that it was communicated to her by Brian De Palma. Like, yeah, you're probably not gonna get this. Like like That's that right, level yeah. of like So well. she she had she'd been in Badlands, the Terms Malik film with Martin Sheen, which is a great film, well worth seeking out, one of the sort of key texts of the seventies Hollywood new wave. Yeah, and that had been a, a bit of a hit. It was a very well regarded film. She's brilliant in it. And then hadn't really done much. She'd gone back to doing sort of TV ads and, and various other things. She was working with a, her husband. I think it's Jack Fisk. He's a production designer, is he Production not? designer. No? He's worked yeah. extensively with Terrence Malick and David Lynch. So David Lynch from 70... Let me get this right. 72 to 77 was shooting a Razorhead. You made me watch that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it took five years, and she, and she worked with Jack Fisk, uh, and worked with her husband helping out doing this stuff. She she worked in the art department on Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, okay. You know, so I, it wasn't like she had this hit with Badlands. This mm-hmm. this is not unusual for for actors. Mm-hmm. They have a hit, and then nothing else comes for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Not that I've even had a hit, but you know. Still, anyway, but, I, moving it's, on. but it's not unusual. And but she really lobbied for the part, and apparently, kind of turned up at the audition angry and <laughs> yes. in in a dress that her like a dress that was two sizes too small that her mother had made for her when she was twelve. Mm-hmm. And she'd put a whole bunch of Vaseline in her hair and all that, and and, and nailed the part. But she's incredible, and in nominated for the Academy Award, mm-hmm. lost to Faye Dunaway for Network. But Network, Rocky, and All the President's Men were the big hitters at the Academy Awards. Sissy Spacek was nominated, and the wonderful Piper Laurie was nominated. She was well. nominated. She's, she's brilliant. She is. I literally can't get enough of her in this movie. I fucking love. Her. I mean, she's an icon anyway. Like she is the. I think she's now like the last still living person who is recognised as an icon of the golden age of Hollywood. Like mm-hmm. she is unbelievable. She's so good, and I think. Um, did she come out of retirement for this? So the, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> she... Brian, you son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. She's a, she's pheno- like she's phenomenal. She's an actor's actor and you watch this movie as an actor you're like Margaret White, that's who I want to play. She's yeah. like, so much fun. It's she, amazing. And you can tell she's having fun. Oh, she's having a ball. So the story with her is she'd been in The Hustler with Paul mm-hmm. Newman and is very great in that film. And then she kind of stepped away and stepped yeah. away and did other things. And I think she taught. Um, so she was doing theatre, but she retired from film for like right, okay. 15 years. And it was apparently her agent. She didn't even have an agent actually at this point. And it was an agent that she previously had called her up and said, they are interested in you for this movie. We're going to send you the script. And then apparently she was like, I don't get it. <laughs> she really yeah, like, I don't yeah. get it. I read yeah. she played it like it was a black comedy. Yeah. That was like apparently her husband said to her, "Oh no, like um, Brian De Palma's all of his stuff is like I don't I don't know where he got this. I'm not entirely sure because my understanding was that Brian De Palma, like you've explained, had, had done a few things, but this was his big box office success. So like mm. he wasn't like well known, and mm. and apparently her husband said to her, oh, he's very comedic in what he does, and she was like, oh, it's a satire. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. okay, <laughs> cool. That's how I'll approach it. Yeah. And then she went she went into the city, took the meeting with him." And he chatted her up and then like she was like, okay. And then they were like, we would like you to do it. And she said yes. So in her, from my understanding of that, she went into it thinking, this is a comedy, which I was like, it's not a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, funny, Piper. I'm not laughing, Piper. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it's the exact opposite of, if you watch, um, oh, what's that movie? Hot Shots with Charlie Sheen, the, oh, the yeah. spoof of Top Gun. 
he plays it so well because he it's he plays it as if no one's told him it's a comedy. Yeah, he's very earnest. You know, like no yeah. one's explained to him that it's a comedy. So I'm sure he knew it was a comedy, obviously, but the way he plays it is like mm-hmm. that. And with her, this is a very straight. Well, do you know what? It's not. It's actually the it's great. Actually not. The, yeah. the great thing about Carrie is also that it's it's kind of high camp mm-hmm. in a lot of ways as well and she's the highest of high camps oh, you yes. know and has some and we'll get th- we'll come to the lines as whiskey on the breath yeah <laughs> <laughs> was yeah. it uh, <laughs> the dirty pillows line dirty pillows. Uh, <laughs> and there's a great line towards it we'll, we'll come to it and i'll just say it now when she says yeah we're not going in chronological no. order here you can say it now was it red i knew it'd be red it's pink, mama. It's pink, mama. <laughs> the great story is that in in the script, it was to be a red dress. It was it's to be a red, red dress d- in the book. Ah, uh-huh, it's meant to be a red dress, and they left the line in, and and that's where that. But it's just the way she, the way she delivers it's tremendous. But that this performance reignited her film career. Yeah. Her other signature role is the hustler Carrie, and then I can't remember the name of the character in Twin Peaks. She she plays yes. she plays one of the main oh, characters. Oh, Catherine Martell. That's yeah. exactly right. Yep. I think. Yes. No, that's it. The acting in this movie, the cast in this movie, are I think they're all phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, across the board. Across yeah. the yeah. board. Everyone does a great job. And considering they were all like um, sort of like. Uh, George Lucas's sloppy seconds. Yeah, is oh, like, largely yeah. largely unknown first timers, and, and yeah, you've hit upon it. it yeah, because I read that Sissy Spacek auditioned for Leia, and I also know from reading the Princess Diarist that Carrie Fisher auditioned for Carrie, and she really thought she was going to get it as well. I'm sure I read somewhere that she thinks she didn't get it because her name was Carrie, and she thought it was too much. She actually says that actually in the. In the, in the Princess Diaries, something like she thought it would be too much to be Carrie as Carrie in Carrie. Yeah. Which would have been, it would have been confusing. It would have been too much. But, yeah. you know, like, you is know. this autobiographical? Like, what is... Jack Nicholson <laughs> plays Jack Torrance. You know, I mean, these things these things <laughs> yeah. do happen. But yeah, it's it, it's interesting to imagine. So to contextualise this a little bit, De Palma's part of, the, the they call them the movie brats, right? So him and Steven Spielberg, who married Amy Irving, who plays Sue Snell. Well, yeah, because did they not meet oh. on the set? Well, I, I'm not sure how they met. They went I out, love this bit of fucking they went, tea. They went, they went out for about four years and then split up and it cost her the part of Marion Ravenwood <gasps> in Raiders. And then they got back together in the mid-80s and married for four years and then he, he dumped her. She got a huge settlement, huge, like, 100 million settlement. And he married Kate Capshaw from... Uh, he plays Willie in Temple of Doom. Hmm. Ah. So, yeah. ah, I know, ah. I know. Very screamy, very screamy. <laughs> the the ah. tea I read about it was that Brian De Palma and Steven Spielberg were pals. Yes. And he said, "Come down to the set of Carrie because there's a lot of cute girls here." That sounds like. And he met like... Amy Irving. Ew. So if you want yeah. to know about how terrible, Ew, Stephen. If you want to know about how terrible. <laughs> men who were making films in the 70s were you should read a book called Easy Riders Raging Bulls by Peter Biskind 
which wow. is which is a great read. It was really popular in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. It's all about the seventies new wave. Lots of students in the QMU pretending that they'd read that book. Mm. It's yeah. it's a really good read. It really is, and the the overarching narrative of it seems to be filmmakers, these male filmmakers, supported by loving partners who they dropped the second they got a, a sniff of success. Mm-hmm. Um, so Peter Bogdanovich, who made uh, the Last Picture Show, which is a great film. He, his wife had supported him for years and then he met Sybil Shepherd on the set of that film and he dropped her. And it's a recurring kind of narrative. But, so, the movie Bratz thing, they were all... <laughs> this fucking... The fucking sigh that came off Jackie there. Oh, it's so oh. depressing. It, it is. Uh, and it, and it, Although it Sybil recurs... Shepherd is, like... Yeah. I do love her, but... No, still, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. So it recurs throughout the, 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 the book. But, so... De Palma, Spielberg, Scorsese, Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver, went on to direct some great films, Blue Collar. He's still directing films. He's got a new one out this this month, I think. Um, and a couple of the others all used to hang out at this house uh, in LA that was it was a, one of these kind of beach houses, and it was rented by, I think, actually Amy Irving and Margot Kidder. Oh, wow. And all these guys used to hang about there and, oh, and, and, and talk about films and do projects and things. And because Lucas was cast in Star Wars, similar kind of age range to the cast of Carrie, they decided to do a shared casting. Mm-hmm. So that's where you get these kind of things mm-hmm. happen. William Catt, who plays Tommy Ross, mm-hmm. who's got maybe the fourth best hair in the film. Second. Third. Well, no. Betty Buckley's got the second best hair. Who's got the first? Chris, Chris, aye, aye. Chris Na- Na- Nancy Allen with a full fire Fawcett. Okay, so let's read. Let's just take a minute. Who's right? Top five here. Let's do it. Let's okay, do it right now. Okay, well I'll give you my top five. Go. Okay. So Nancy Allen, okay. number one, the fire Fawcett curls. And who she? She never stops brushing, obviously. Cause well, you yeah. keep that. You we can keep that going. You can't make it look like that if you stop brushing. Well, that's true. Uh, mm-hmm. Betty Buckley. Betty Buckley. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will have Sissy SpaceX do when she's at the prom I yeah think, she looks I, lovely gentle curls yeah it's yeah. nice the yeah, reflex that would be beautiful uh, John Travolta yeah <laughs> has epic hair yeah his uh, hair's good and we'll come to him in a minute and William Katz curls I remember me and my mate Sandy when we first watched this film we watched it quite a lot as teenagers because all we had to do was not have girlfriends and watch videos <laughs> and uh, we had a running thing because Sissy Spacek has that kind of it's like dirty blonde almost auburn blonde in, in mm-hmm. some sequences look we thought she looked a little bit like Axl Rose and we always thought that William Cat mm-hmm. looked a hell of a lot like 70s Roger Daltrey okay, so yeah. that Carrie in fact was a, a love story between two rock singers oh, oh that's really oh, I like oh, that. that's sweet yeah I mean it's it's bollocks, but it's. Fun. I mean, I'll that's write a, the fan fiction. That's a good hot take. Yeah. That's a great hot take. <laughs> yeah, I'm we're sure. always looking for things that I can write about in the middle of the night when I can't sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so that I'll add that to the list. So in terms of characters, it goes Chris, Chris Miss Collins, Carrie at prom, Billy Nolan, Tommy oh, Ross. That's that's my order. I actually don't have any notes on that. I think that's. I have a slight note only that I feel like Tommy Ross should be slightly higher. I think he should be above. Billy. If William Cat had been as famous as John Travolta ended up being, I think you, I would have put it in that order. But because it's Travolta, you know, you're like, wow. I okay. actually hate him in this movie. Like, I think he's. You don't just, like the performance, I, or you hate the character, or both? I think both because I I don't think he's doing enough for me to hate the character. He's just I I find him really like, what are you doing, John? What are these choices? <laughs> 
<laughs> but but he gets one of the best lines, which is "Keep your tits on." Keep your, keep your tits, tits on. on. So good. It's, it, it's, it's so good. And, and it's the way he delivers when they're doing the, the, the when they're slaughtering the pigs. They get it done, man. Get it done. I've, I've, it's always kind of resi- resonated. I can't cope with the way he drinks beer. He gets it, it all it, over it's his like face. He's never drank a beer before. I, it's, it's like he's never done it before. Like, it's, it's, it's like an alien who's watched someone drink a beer <laughs> once on television, and then ten years later tries to imitate it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. It's just like it's just yeah. I'm not a fan of the character or the performance. I'm happy he's there. Like it amuses me, but like. <laughs> so interestingly, it's his first film performance. That does not remotely surprise me. <laughs> but if you watch the trailer, they make a big deal about uh, you know they're going through the cast and and introducing John Travolta. Like I'm not I'm not in any way slighting John Travolta because like his portfolio speaks for itself. But like there's well, he is some... a fucking nutter though and a Scientologist. I so. worry about John Travolta. Much. I think they've got something on him. They've not got something on everyone. That's how it works. Everyone, I think that is how it works. Yeah. Shh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cancelled. Cancelled. <laughs> oh God, they're gonna come for us. Oh my God. <laughs> True story, right? Uh, my brother was once ejected from the Church of Scientology because him and his pals were, I think they were in Edinburgh and they were asked if they'd take uh, one of their, I can't remember what the tests are called, but the oh personality test. Personality test, test yeah. And they went, oh, all right, for a laugh. Uh, and But they went in with a bag of cans. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a bag of cans. And so he was actually ejected from the Church of Scientology for tearing right in amongst a bag of cans. <laughs> so, John Travolta, so John if you Travolta. are listening, if you want out... Bag of cans. Bag of cans. (laughs) Yeah. The casting thing's really interesting. William Catt talks about... William Catt's Tommy Ross. He talks about remembering auditioning or doing a reading of Star Wars with Kurt Russell as Han Solo. So would he have been Luke? Yeah. He was very close to being Luke. And like, actually, very uh, close. Oh, to I can see Luke. Kurt Russell as Hans. I mean, obviously they did the right thing, but yeah, they made the right choice in the end. But like, apparently William Cat like was very close. Like he auditioned mm. several times, and he was nearly um, Luke Skywalker. Let's try to get beyond the first ten minutes of this film. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. So we we follow up the opening sequence of the film with. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, with the with the scene, we'll brush past the scene in the principal's office. It is interesting, I think, that the male characters in the film are either inept mm-hmm. idiots or props. Yeah, which yeah. is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, so Tommy Ross and Billy Nolan, the, the Travolta part, both are just manipulated by the women in their life. Yeah, they're, they're doing what they've been asked to do. Interestingly, they have no agency. Mm-hmm. That's true. Which yeah, is, which that's is very true. It's interesting, isn't it? Which is interesting. That's really interesting. I would like to point out at this juncture. I know it's such a small thing, but it really boils my blood, and it's quite integral to the scene in the classroom where Tommy's poem is getting read out. Mm-hmm. Carrie says it's beautiful, mm-hmm. and the teacher makes fucking fun of her. The yeah. male teacher makes fun mm-hmm. of her, and it's so. It just it makes me so mad because it's just like you're a pathetic little man who knows what the high school hierarchical dynamic is here. And you're playing, you're kicking the, the weakest. You're kicking yeah. the weakest one because you wanna, whether you like it or not, you're meant to be an authority figure, but you you know actually that you're not. Yeah. And that's what you're doing here. That's you're playing to that power dynamic, mm-hmm. and it makes me so mad. Which then yeah. makes me love Tommy because, because he, he says, hates it as well. Yeah, and he says you suck. suck. Yeah. Yeah. This is where we start to see more of the telekinesis. Yes, mm-hmm. which is so easy to forget. We've not. Yeah. When she knocks the wee boy off the bike. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Creepy Carrie, creepy Carrie. So that's about nine, ten minutes into the film. Mm-hmm. We don't see much more telekinesis other than the mirror until maybe about 25, 30 minutes into the film. It's baked right in at the start. She knocks out. It's interesting that, mm-hmm. that when she's having the freak out in the shower, she pops the light bulb. Mm-hmm. Now, Jackie, you've read the novel. Yes. So the novel, I believe, opens with a sort of an earlier kind of reign of stone. Yeah. So the way the novel set out is epistolary, I think, which is uh, a bit like the way that Dracula is written, where it's told in a series of letters, articles, book excerpts, but also some of it is just Carrie's stream of consciousness because there's a lot of a lot of the book is academics after the fact speculating on what they think has happened, why has this per- they've accepted that she had telekinesis, they don't know why or how or if this is something that other people have and also part of it is Sue Snell who's a survivor of what happens has written a book of her account of things and there's yeah there's this incident of when she was like four or something and they had these neighbours and one of the neighbours was really really pissed off at Carrie's mum really really annoyed at her and so she basically got her teenage daughter to go and sunbathe naked in the garden because she knew it would just really really annoy her and Carrie gets out of the house she's just a wee girl and she comes over and she's just fascinated by a beautiful young woman sunbathing with very few clothes on and her mum comes out and is absolutely raging shouts the other mum drags Carrie into the house and then they feel really bad because they're like we've just got this wee girl into trouble and then this rain of stones comes and knocks the roof in but it doesn't affect any other homes it's like this phenomenon so which people just think at the time is a phenomenon but there's a few like things happen around Carrie but yeah it's like it seems to be the onset of her menstrual cycle that kickstarts like a feeling that she has of control over or a link but there's also more in the book about how her mum is aware of it and is less restraining of Carrie than she was like the abuse that Carrie's been through prior to this period prior to her period is almost hinted at being a lot more severe Mm. but there's her mum is increasingly frightened of her as the film goes on because she's got control over it now as well not yet but she gets it the book is great Mm. The reason I mentioned that sequence is they filmed the oh did they they, they filmed the sequence with the, the the neighbor and the girl and and a young a younger actor or it might have been Sissy Spacek actually just playing younger I think right, it was okay. footage doesn't exist you can't see it one of those things you know it never got printed whatever you know but there's production stills that exist of it but apparently the stones coming in didn't read on the camera mm. okay. Uh, so it's one of those things that just didn't work, which is where the confusion that some people have with the ending of what's going on. Because it at the makes ending. more sense at uh-huh. the end if you know that that's happened previously. Yeah, because there's a threat of it as well when her mum doesn't want her to go to the prom, and it's try- she she kind of starts to threaten her with like I'll bring back the stones. Yeah, yeah, and doesn't in the book correct me if I'm wrong here, Jackie, because the ending of the movie always bothers me because I feel like suddenly the house starts to collapse in on itself, mm-hmm. and I don't think the film addresses what I think is going on which is that Carrie is doing that she is Mm -hmm. like she's she's dragging them both down together and like crumpling the house and that is a thing that she is doing whereas in the movie it feels like 
she she sends the knives at her mother to kill her in self defense primarily I think and then realizes what she's done and freaks out. It's and almost then, it's almost like she's lost control. Lost in the movie. control, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas I feel like if I remember correctly in the book, it's like no, I'm gonna I'm gonna drag us both out. Like I'm the, I'm ending this and kind of the ending is actually quite different. But I won't spoil the ending of the book in case people want to read it because it's different and it's kind of it's got like a nice. I mean, it's not it's not a happy ending. It's not like oh she gets crowned prom queen the end, which is how I want it to end. But um, she she doesn't bring the house down, literally. Okay. Unlike the talking heads, yeah. who were literally burning down the house. Yes, exactly. Unlike those guys, yeah. yeah. They were not at the prom though. They didn't turn up. No, no, no. no, that no. Was... They got they got they got a, a weirdly British sounding glam rock band to play the prom. I love those what was it guys. Vance and some Vance or Tower. That's what they were called. Uh, nice, nice, Jackie. Well done. Blowing Thank up you. the John with a cherry bomb. Blowing up the John yeah. with a cherry bomb. Yeah. yeah. It, it sounds like the sweet or someone like that. It, yeah. it sounds yeah. really yeah. British. So we get to our introduction to the wonderful. Piper Laurie mm. as Margaret White, mm-hmm. who oh. arrives at Priscilla Pointer's house. She does. What a oh, fucking yeah. pain in the tits. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> oh, God. She's How, such no, a pain in the tits. My favourite thing about that scene is the fact that Priscilla Pointer, as as Mrs. Snell, is getting pished in <laughs> the day. Yeah. She's having like a really good gin and tonic or a, something a like big, that. A she? big yeah. one full ice. Do you know it's what I mean? like, yeah. we live in godless times. <laughs> I'll, I'll drink, drink to that. that. <laughs> She's an icon, <laughs> and also actually uh, the actress that plays Sue Snell's mum. I think. Yep, is that that's right? right. That's yeah, right. I I could not take my eyes off of that gin and tonic. It was yeah. just like you're happy today, aren't you? You're watching your stories. Sue's up studying or at school or something. Mm. She's not there. You are having a nice day. She's not just at school. She's pelting Carrie White with uh, with sanitary <laughs> with pads. pads. Yeah. yeah, but yes, not a proud moment. No, yeah. And you get so much... So so unlike for the rest of the movie, Margaret White, Piper Laurie's very restrained in that scene. But it's the way that Priscilla Poirier looks and goes, oh, oh fuck. fuck. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this nutter. You know? But it's also like that kind of small town main thing where it's like you can't just be like, no, not today. Get the fuck out of my house. You, you have lunatic. to be like, oh, come it's in, so, Mrs. White. It's so weighted as well where she's yeah. standing outside the screen door just staring at her t- until she says, won't you come in, Mrs. White? She's like, well, thank you very much. And then she just fucking flies through the door yeah. and like makes a beeline to the whole table and starts unpacking her shit and like ah, immediately unpacking shit out of mm-hmm. her bag to go to you know to give her the book and I love that she goes I'll, I'll, I'd like to donate five ten dollars just fuck off yeah, get yeah. the fuck out of my house and Piper Laurie plays it brilliantly because she knows exactly what's mm-hmm. going on she takes out the tin she takes it packs it up and yeah she like snaps it shut mm-hmm. and then she says like I hope you find Jesus because she actually didn't want money she wanted to proselytize I hope you find Jesus people can't see me right now but she does this thing when she lifts her hand up in the <laughs> yeah. air, like I can see it, and it's very convincing. Yes, it's very convincing. I think I think you can hear the hand raise in your voice. Yeah, it's it. It's a. It's That's just how so, good of an actress you are. Thank, thank you. <laughs> so many choices. She's amazing, and I hate her. And then, and then from there we get into the house, that the fucking white house. house. Yeah. Now there's a term that's too wanky to go into. But I'm going to use it anyway. The mise en scène. Right, the everything we see on the screen is what we did. Would you call... like study film? 
<laughs> I, I, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Uh, it basically, everything you see on screen is the mise-en-scene. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think people watching films, and I certainly don't think new filmmakers realise this as well, that every, if it's going to be on the screen, it has to be there for a reason. Brian De Palma is a man who very much understands this. And I, I, the, the, the production design in that house and every little prop and, and, and the, the costume on the characters and just the way the house looks, because you, you go from white picket fence, it looks like the opening of Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. Right? It has that kind of very kind of wholesome Americana vibe. You know, there's paintings, hopper paintings of houses that look like Carrie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you get into this house, it's almost like you're in a Hammer Horror movie. It's oppressive. Mm-hmm. It's deeply, deeply oppressive. I, like, it makes me feel like I can't breathe. All the scenes in the house mm-hmm. make me feel like I can't catch my breath. And the performances in that scene are tremendous. When she's hitting her with the book and... Oh, it's so uh, it's such a violent thing when she's, like, trying to make her read it and she won't. She hits her in the face with it. It's so, yeah. like, throwaway violent. Mm-hmm. And then the, the dragging of her yeah. into the cupboard yeah. by the hair. Oh, it's horrible. And when we get into the, the, the prayer cupboard, there's that really gaudy... So I, I was raised Catholic, right? So I know gaudy iconography, right? <laughs> You'd, they'd sell this shit out the back of the church. But there's a the model of St. Sebastian. St. Sebastian, that's mm-hmm. who it is. I was trying to think that. Yeah, thank you. So the year, the year before Carrie came out, uh, Derek Jarman, the brilliant British filmmaker, had made a film called Sebastian, which is about St. Sebastian. Very controversial film. At the time it was released, it was mostly played in what we would now think of as porno cinemas. It was a lot of Willy and Bum. Right. And it was broadcast in the 80s on Channel 4 when they first started and Mary Whitehouse lost her shit because, like I say, lots of willies, lots of bums. It's very homoerotic film. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of iconic film of gay cinema. St. Sebastian is killed with arrows, basically, is the, is the, the, the condensed story of St. Sebastian. A lot of people think it's Jesus in the cupboard. Yeah, I know. And I think that the, I was having this conversation with Chris, our producer and editor, mm-hmm. the other night when we were watching the movie and he was like, that's not Jesus, That what saint is that? And I was like, I can't fucking remember, which is why I'm like, St. Sebastian. That's I have a supplementary fact. Time for another Jackie's Facts. <gasps> Jackie's Facts. Jackie gets her jingle. So he was shot with arrows. He was tied to a tree and shot with arrows, but he did not die. He was saved and nursed back to health by St. Irene, but then he took himself to Rome to tell the Emperor Diocletian to warn him about his sins, which the Emperor Diocletian didn't like and had him clubbed to death at that point. See, I should know that because I have actually seen Sebastian because we ran it. I used to run a film society at university and we'd do a poll and for LGBT month we put up a poll and I, I still think it was sabotaged. To be honest, I, I'm not convinced that many people actually wanted to see <laughs> Sebastian. Uh, you know, we had films like Carol on there and My Beautiful Laundrette and, you know, some far more mainstream fare. I'm not sure what happened with the voting. Somebody fiddled the ballot, which will oh. come up again later. Oh. But for a film that is wall to wall, beautiful naked men, it's quite boring. Right. <laughs> so, like, which is, which is not. Maybe we wouldn't find it so. I mean,. I, sure. It's I also it's, all, it's also quite long. I mean, yeah. I like Derek Jarman's films. I didn't love Sebastian. I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. It's one of his early films, so I should have known that, but I didn't. Well, um, do you know what? Jackie gets her existing jingle, Jackie's facts, and also the new jingle that we've just assigned Chris, which is "Studying is cool." <laughs> studying is cool. Yeah. 
I did read a few articles she about it. She studied so hard, you guys. As did Paul, he having did, well, two degrees in film. All of which he obviously did just to be on this podcast today, in this well, moment. I, no, I, I, no, that's not true. I didn't do two degrees in film. I did two degrees specifically on Brian De Palma's carry. <laughs> I, I've literally never seen another film. This is this is your dissertation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again. Yeah, yeah. I did it twice. Um, the the cupboard scenes and the the house scenes. Again, the mise en scène and the production design and everything is is helping this be the oppressive horror show that it is. But the performances are really the things for me that take it over the edge. Piper Laurie is the like she's she's madness personified trauma and madness personified and I'll touch on that again later I think between her and and, and Sissy SpaceX performance which is like again it's the same level of she's clearly gone through this time and time again but it's still no less traumatic and she's screaming and she doesn't want to she's she's putting up a fight from being dragged into this yes. cupboard and it's Oh, it's painful. It's so really tough. It's the way she looks at her and says, you should have told me, Mama. You should have told me, Mama. She yeah. says it so many times. Yeah. And it's the repetition, you should yeah. have told me. It's and just... why. She just wants to know why she didn't tell her. Yeah. And the way that's shot as well from that downward angle where you don't really see, you just see the Bible and her getting smacked in the face. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of like putting up with it, but still pushing to get an answer to that question. Yes. It's so devastating. It's devastating, and it's also in a very, very... My mum was very, very nice to me, but I think a lot of teenagers and a lot of kids have the constant struggle with with their parents of do you not understand how painful it is to be embarrassed in front of your peers at school? And like that, if someone's not nice to you, they say, ignore them, or like you know you you're wearing the wrong color school uniform or something and it's not the cool thing and there's like doesn't matter what socks you have and you're like it fucking does matter what socks i have yeah and that is obviously nothing on what carrie has but i think every teenager has that wrangle with their parents of like this is very important and she does have that fight mm-hmm. eventually she yeah she has that exact fight because she's like i'm funny Mama, I don't want to be funny. I want to be normal. Yeah. yeah. And it's because she's given just the slightest little crumb of that mm-hmm. being possible. Like I don't think I don't think Carrie had ever entertained the idea that she would ever be normal until the Tommy Ross. Yeah, she's just trying situation. to get through high school. But the Tommy Ross situation gave her galvanized her enough to be just that tiny fraction brave enough to challenge her mother and and start to say I I want to be normal. Mm-hmm. Oh god, it's so heartbreaking. Like I think about it's quite a difficult film for me to watch because I I identify with Carrie on so many levels. Obviously not to the degree that the film mm-hmm. depicts, but like that idea of isolation and feeling strange and not feeling quite right is like well, it's hugely universal, which I think is it's every why teenager's the, nightmare. It's every teenager's nightmare, and it's why I think the film stands the test of time. Yeah, I think I 100%. watched this film for the first time as a teenager, and my takeaway from the shower scene was, "God, I'm really glad that wasn't me." Like that's it wasn't yeah. actually it's just what everybody petty. who's pelting with like, sani pads is thinking. That's not me. Yeah, before it's, the, it's yeah. that's awful. Somebody help this child. It's better you than me. I'd, yeah, and and the best horror is. It's not about the monsters, it's not about the telekinesis, it's not about the serial killers, it's about how people react mm-hmm. when they're afraid yeah. and mm-hmm. they're vulnerable and they turn to violence and mob justice and all of that kind of stuff. And that's what's so brilliant about... The, the whole film is all about that fucking cesspit that is high school, mm-hmm. you know? Where because everyone wants to not be the Carrie White, the... the 
they turn on and, and this is the thing i mean i think everyone can sympathize or empathize and understand carrie pike i think they can all probably if we're being honest look back at a time when we were at school and we'd be one of the girls with a sani pad oh 100 yeah. you know i mean i think it tribalism best to come is, out of it is intoxicating yeah. Mm-hmm. tribalism is the most intoxicating thing it may, it, it's the thing that because to engage in the tribe is to be protected yes mm-hmm. absolutely and if you're not strong enough to find some way of which Sue Snell does Sue, like yeah. Sue Snell and Tommy Ross become the kind of the, those characters don't get replicated very much in clever ways in films after that teenage films after that mm-hmm. like the idea that you would help somebody out in a weird kind of like yeah sub like like slightly nefarious plot becomes replicated in teen films later but it's not as clever or indeed as well intentioned as tommy ross and Mm -hmm. sue snell and that is a good thing that stephen king's good at he's really good he's actually really good at writing teenagers and he's good at right at making you understand why somebody is doing something he's very good at planting motive yeah and i think it's really important in the movie for sue snell and tommy ross to have that conversation with miss collins where they say well, Sue Snell says, I don't care what people... We don't care what people think. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to plant that because the rest of them, you see seeds of doubt in the rest of the, the group, but mostly they are more concerned with being part of the tribe. Yeah, and even Tommy, when she says that to Miss Collins, like, we don't care what people think, and Tommy's Tommy kind of sort of like... He's coyly shrugs and is like, I'm He's just... Like, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a similar scene in the remake as well where he's played by Ansel Elgort and he he kind of almost he overinflates it more where he's just like come on it is gonna look pretty silly like and he so he's agreeing with Miss Collins but he's still he's still gonna do it yeah because he wants to he, yeah the fact he that... gets why Sue needs to needs it done and yeah. he also wants to please her because he loves her oh i know i know we love tommy ross he's so he's a nice boy mama do we need a he's a nice (laughs) boy mama do we need an unproblematic fave jingle at this point like are we giving out bags of cookies to tommy ross not bags of cookies a cookie if i was walking around with a tray of cookies i would implore tommy ross to have at least one we need it you can have a cookie jingle Just stepping over the low bar that's been I think, presented okay. for I think them, Tommy so. Ross is a high bar. I think he's, he's a, sets yeah. a rare high bar for being a nice boy in an environment when it was, wasn't necessarily cool to be a nice boy yeah. or safe to be one. And But also his, his wee pal George... Oh, the wee short guy. Yeah, uh, he's tremendous. He's lovely oh, as well. I forgot about the, yeah. the tuxedo scene with you him. You don't and have to have ruffles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after the house kind of scene where she did, does the telekinesis up the stairs and breaks mm-hmm. the mirror, and there's that quite famous picture of Jesus. Oh yes. No, mm-hmm. so this picture is I think quite well known because. If you look at it from a certain angle, it looks like Jesus is looking at you. But if you don't look at it, depending on how you look at it, <laughs> if you're feeling if you're feeling guilty or less, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. it looks like his eyes are closed. And it looks like he's looking at you, and that's 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 framed. But then we kind of leave Carrie to the one side for a mm-hmm. big portion of the film, mm. and this is where Carrie's often remembered as a horror film, which it is. But it's also, you know, you could put it in a genre with Clueless. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah. Ten Things She's I Hate About You. And, and even things like, uh, one of my favourites is Gregory's Girl. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Alexander McKendrick, who's one of Scotland's great filmmakers. He, he made a whole bunch of Ealing films, The Lady Killers. Uh, he made Whiskey Galore. He went to America and made one of the great American films of the 50s, a film called This Sweet Smell of Success. And there's a book 
that exists, which is the greatest book on filmmaking you could ever hope to buy of his teachings. Right? If you want to make films and there's a million books on filmmaking, if you're only going to buy one, I think it's called On Filmmaking, Alexander McKendrick's tremendous. In this book, he talks about directing films. A lot, obviously. But there's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what the fucking book's about. But there's, it's a a specific, book. there's a specific passage in the book where he talks about the director's job and your job is directing audiences' attention. Mm. which is more important than what you say to the camera person it's more important than the instructions you give to the actors your overall thing is directing the audience's attention so you're talking there about does he fall in love with her or not mm. right what happens when he gets her up to dance what 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 do we see well what we see oh, oh, oh on you go sorry well it's very trippy actually that scene becomes very trippy because it's very spinny it's very mm. spinny so de palma likes his bells and whistles he really likes to push it with techniques and things there's a scene in hitchcock's vertigo that does something similar but far less disorientating where james stewart and kim novak kiss and the camera does a 360 round them so in carrie when he's dancing and this is the first moment you've got that beautiful music mm-hmm. um it's a song it's a pop song that the composer pino Donaggio wrote for the film i don't know who did the lyrics and it was sung by amy irving's sister oh, she does the vocals well, it's a full family affair for amy irving oh, yeah she? absolutely so the camera does a 360 round them speeding up mm-hmm. whilst they're pivoting in the other direction Right. I think on a, I think actually on a rotating thing. I was thing. wondering about that because yeah. it's, yeah. And William Catt talks about it, he said it took us a long time to shoot because they were having to time their lines for when the camera was on their mouths. Oh my God. Oh my gosh, so what a pain. I would imagine, and this is not the most complex thing in the film to shoot. No. There's there's more complex sequences. But I remember always going, is he falling for Carrie? Mm-hmm. But, and I think that's the intention. And it's very clever the way he does it because you get lost in that moment. Yeah. The spinning, the heady kind of It's probably moment. meant to reflect how Carrie's feeling. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because the three things when you're directing, well, when you're making a film is you've got to analyse the sequence, right? It's all about giving information to the audience, directing the audience's attention. You've got plot information, of which this film does a lot of, you know, the, we'll come to the tracking scene in a moment, but the, there's a two and a bit minute tracking sequence throughout that where we see this happening and that happening that's expository information revealing character traits and revealing emotion are the three kind of main ones and in that sequence we're feeling what Carrie feels and that's mm. the Palma is best we really are aren't oh that's we? lovely oh my gosh but it, it's lovely but it's also devastating yeah. because actually when you know what's happening and what's about to happen but and it just it's... shows what a good what a good film it is because you get this I always get this in Titanic as well where I'm like maybe this time they'll just miss the iceberg <laughs> Like and it doesn't matter how many times you see it, and it's the same with um, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. I'm like this time he's going to get there just in time. It's going to be a different, it's going to be a different ending this time. Every time I watch Carrie, I just go, God, please just give her this one. Yeah, just let this one time when I watch this film, can she just have a nice night and go home? Maybe have to kill her mother, but we'll cross that bridge yeah, when we come to she, she absolutely deserves it, so that's fine. Yeah, but maybe she'll just go out, end up getting pissed with Tommy Ross and all the gang, and not Smoke go Smoke her home. first cigarette. 
Yeah, maybe smack Chris around the dish. Yeah, like, yeah. Because, you know. Well, she deserves it. And we've not even talked about it. Nancy Allen. We'll come to we've Nancy Allen. We've not talked about Nancy it. Allen. Let's talk about Nancy Allen. Let's give Nancy Allen our moment because actually, Nancy Allen does a great job. And Nancy Allen was about to give up, by the way. So, like, That's right. Yeah. She's a great baddie. An unredeemable baddie, oh, pretty she's, much. Yeah. She's so bad, so much that she's completely irredeemable. You're right. Like, I would say that, like, she's one of the few characters of film that in this genre that involves teenagers there's become well I don't know I can't think of any off the top of my head that are this unredeemable but she is like she's oh. the there's the girl in she's all that that used to go out with Freddie Prince Jr that dumped him for the guy who was in the real world she's vague memory there's of she her, doesn't yeah. have any redeemable qualities there are very few though yeah there are very few I have nothing on she's all that <laughs> Uh, I, it's not one I've seen. I have seen. I've seen quite a lot of these films. Did you cover that was the one that the conservatoire? Uh, you didn't. Yeah, you didn't cover that in your high-end <laughs> films. Prestigious films. Cool. Prestigious I can't degree. believe they left that out. Oh, listen, I'm surprised I've not seen it because I'm of that generation. I must have seen Cruel Intentions 43 mm. fucking oh, I mean, times. Oh, that's great. We should cover that in a podcast at some point. Well, she's all that is the one that coined the like. We don't care about her. She's ugly. She's awful. But oh, she's taken off her glasses and taken down her hair. Well, and well, that's really like hot. What happens with Carrie? That's like, pretty much what happens that's here. Pretty much with Carrie. And, and is this film the film that started the high school film trope of fake? dates mm. possibly yeah because you got she's all that 10 things i hate about you never been kissed to an extent because that's what happens to josie at the start of that is that she gets asked out as a joke this is very you made, she, yeah this is a very good point cruel intentions uh which we've also just mentioned but you know he goes after uh, reese witherspoon it's sort of shakespearean of isn't it like yeah and, these well, are I guess, like... like cruel intentions and 10 things i hate about you are based on a classic novel and bait and switch, true. the fake the fake romance versus yeah. the real romance it's very shakespearean but it, arguably from a in film a, point of view and in a high school setting yeah was carrie the first one to do it but yeah but carrie is the one that's like oh she's because she's not supposed to be beautiful again this is the book but she's not we can tell sissy spacek is beautiful that you e- can tell. even under the hair yeah and the, the, yeah yeah it's the it's, eyes it's, it's the terrifying the, eyes yeah very striking looking actor but in the book, she's described as like toad-like. Toad-like, and, yeah, and she's she's got a toad like a toad-like or like a frog-like face or something. And they, I think he says it to her in in the film as well. It's a nice scene in the book where she gets ready for the prom. She's incapacitated her mum, and she opens the door, and he's actually quite shocked and says, "You're beautiful." And then like the lovely period commences, and you feel really sad the whole time because you know what's going to happen. What's great about the middle of the film? So the the, the prom sequence is twenty five minutes of the runtime. And it's an hour and 30, so that's not... Hour and 35, mm-hmm. I think. Oh, yeah. yeah, something like that. So it's a big chunk of the film. Big chunk of the film. Uh, which is correct. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely correct that, that, that De Palma gives that much of the film to that. But what's fun about the middle part of the film is you do get some of the, the more fun high school mm-hmm. things as well. You get to see the interaction. The cast across the board are great. Oh, they're great. Betty Buckley is the, is the teacher. Her interactions with Chris... Nancy Allen, I think, is a tremendously underrated actor. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Nancy Allen's. Mm-hmm. She'd done a film called The Last Detail, which is a Hal Ashby film. A brilliant film, Jack Nicholson a movie. A very small part before that, but this is really her coming out on screen. And it's kind of, I mean, it's a signature role. And she's the original... What's the character in Mean Girls? The, the Regina George. Aye, mm-hmm. she's like a the original pro- Gina, Regina yeah, George. she's a prototypical Regina George. Yeah, 
And she plays it so wonderfully as an irredeemable bitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, she's just so vindictive. And also is able to perform oral sex and have a full conversation and at the same saying, time. Yeah, I mean, and keep I saying Kelly's name. Yeah, that seems fascinating. I mean, that's a skill. Yeah. Yeah. Except, especially saying the name Billy, which you have to draw your lips together to say. Yeah. Oh, Billy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate Carrie White. How do you say that without causing I pain? I hate Carrie White. <laughs> I, the, that I, is the only scene that, and, and for, like, stay with me here. If there's a redeemable <laughs> quality to Chris, there's something rooted in her trauma that that is the level to which she's prepared to go to give that beer sucking Neanderthal a blowjob in the back of a car because she hates this girl at school so much for reasons best known to themselves, mm-hmm. other than that this poor vulnerable lassie is weird. She like da- she dared to have a like, teacher stick up for her. Yeah, <laughs> while she was cowering naked in the corner <laughs> yeah. of a shower while she was being pelted with sanitary pads. Like, Chris must be carrying her own trauma in her own way. Yeah. Or there's that way. by the patriarchy. However, well, it is. It's, yeah, it's it's patriarchy and white supremacy and all those awful things where it's like some people, when they've done something bad or they've recognized something bad's happened, something else, want to do something to rectify the situation and be accountable. But then there are other people who don't want to be accountable. And the only way to not have to be accountable is to prove to everybody that the wronged party deserved to be abused in the first place. And there's, and that is a real thing that still and goes on. In a longer version of this movie, Chris absolutely would have done that because she escapes the gym when Carrie locks everyone in and kills everybody <laughs> and sets fire to the gym. There's a longer version of this movie where you could. there's maybe a scene where she is justifying I'm going to find her and I'm going to run her over in my car. Yeah. Because yeah. she's an evil witch and I was right this whole time. Yeah. 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 But we don't get that scene. I have to say, I love the interaction between Travolta and Nancy Allen. And it's interesting because in 81, De Palma cast them both again. So De Palma married Nancy Allen. Right. Did he? Yes. And then... More tea. Love it. And still speaks highly of him. They've been divorced for a long time, but still speaks very highly of him. That's nice. I I think their, their divorce was fairly amicable. My assumption is anyway. But cast them both as the leads in Blowout, which I don't necessarily agree with. I love Blowout, but a lot of people call it his masterpiece. Um, it's extremely good bit of filmmaking. But their interactions in this film are just... F- f- despite the domestic violence, that's just like... <laughs> con- it's a film full of people slapping each other. It's uh, such a slappy film. It's very that's 70s. Anything people were slapping each other in the 70s all the time. Like, 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 Betty Buckley is, is Miss Collins, batters Sue across the face, and then basically threatens to batter her, you know. Is, is Miss Was Collins anybody arguing with that, though? Oh, I no. mean, no. De Palma loves his bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. and he loves his tricks and his camera tricks and things and in this film my assumption is this must have been fairly new technology at the time he uses something called a split diopter mm-hmm. right and a split diopter is I had to google this because I know what it does but I didn't know how it did it okay it's a filter that you put on the lens so traditionally in cinematography you've got two kind of things that you can do deep focus Right, and deep focus is where camera has everything on screen in focus. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you have shallow focus or shallow depth of field, we call it. Now, try this, and if you're listening at home, you can try this as well. Put your hand in front of your face, maybe 30 metres. 30 metres? 30, 30 metres? <laughs> or giants. I've got, I've got long arms. 30 centimetres <laughs> in front of your face, right? Focus your eye, close one eye, and focus your eye on your hand. And then focus your eye on whatever the wall is behind you. And you'll notice that your hand has gone out of focus. Oh yeah. oh yeah. And then you focus back on your hand, and you'll you, you'll see the focus shift. Love so sh- shallow depth of field basically imitates how the human eye works, right? So like a fifty mil lens kind of is what the human eye looks like. 
Split diopter allows him, it's a filter that goes in the lens, and one is convex and one concave, I can't, I don't know the technical stuff, but basically allows someone in the far background to be in focus and someone in the foreground to be in focus, but everything else not to be in focus. So it's a way of bringing two people mm. together on the screen. And he does it a few times in the film, most notably in the scene we were talking about earlier, the poem the scene. The poem scene. I was going to ask you if that's yeah. where he does it because it's oh, cause very, it's... very remarkable. Well, like it, it, I felt it. Because it puts them quite intimately together. It does. Despite it does. the distance between them physically. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. He does it in the scene, scene when the, uh, Miss Collins has them running on the spot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah, she's yeah. right up in, in our face on the le- right hand side of the frame and the left hand side of the frame you've got the girls in the background uh-huh. and we can see Chris coming towards her it's so clever that's very clever studying is cool I'd also, I think, it's worth mentioning the score uh, of the film. So Pino Donaggio is the composer. De Palma wanted Bernard Herrmann, who, if there was a Mount Rushmore of film composers, he would definitely, it's a no-brainer that he would be one of them. The problem was, Bernard Herrmann, end of 75, handed over the score for another great 1976 film, a Taxi Driver, the Martin Scorsese film, mm. and then on Christmas Eve, died. Oh. So he couldn't do the film. No, so he went fair. to Pino Donaggio and Pino Donaggio had been a pop star in the 60s so he'd, he'd a classically trained musician he'd been a pop star in the 60s singer-songwriter he wrote Lon Che Non Vivo which we all know as You Don't Have to Say You Love Me it was very popular oh, Dusty oh, Springfield's yeah. version Elvis Presley recorded it big hit in 73 he scored Don't Look Now the Nicholas Rogue film which mm-hmm. is not only one of the great horror films it's one of the great films and that was his first film and the score for Carrie the kind of lush kind of romantic kind of themes that are in it are very similar to the score for Don't Look Now but going back to the Hitchcock thing and like I say De Palma is a huge Hitchcock guy the the sort of horror sequences or the the suspense sequences are very Bernard Herrmann like mm-hmm. You know, the sort of stabbing staccato strings. In fact, the, there's a couple of points where you just hear what sounds, what is a direct quote from the psycho strings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you, um, I was watching it on Prime, and you know how you can do this sort of like it's the x ray thing. So if you pause it, you get the little thing above the play bar that sh- mm-hmm. tells you like the cast and everything. I had to pause it for some reason when something was happening that was quite violent, and he was a credit. Bernard Herrmann was a credit on the screen. Oh, interesting. Because it was directly attributing the and it was like like psycho it was like Bernard Herrmann psycho that's really interesting because it's there it's like it's in it's in it's in all the moments where Carrie looks and is actually actively using yeah. her power yes it's yes. uh it's not there when she's when she can't control it but when she's murdering people actively it's there mm-hmm. did you notice the name of the high school oh I didn't the name of the high school in the book I can't remember what it is because I've not read the book <laughs> but in the film it is the Bates High School no, it's not. Yeah. Studying is cool. Yeah. So you get to the prom, and the prom's this huge sequence, and we could talk about that sequence for the next five hours. We could do another podcast. Mm-hmm. Just on, on that, that sequence. sequence yeah. I, I, I did read somewhere at some point in, in my, my life of reading bollocks about films. He studies, you guys. He really does. Uh, <laughs> The, I, I, the amount of weeks that were dedicated to that. But there's one 
sequence that I just every time I see this film I go oh and these are the things that you don't as an audience member consciously notice but it's the reason why the film's so good and it's the what's well, one of the reasons why the film's so good and it's the the tracking sequence so Hitchcock talks about the difference between suspense and surprise right and I'm misquoting here but he says that surprise would be two characters sitting in a coffee shop and a bomb goes off the audience will jump out of seat for a split second if you show someone planting a bomb and setting a timer under the table for 15 minutes going away and then the characters come and sit and have their coffee then you've got tension Mm. you know suspense the audience are on the edge of their seats throughout that sequence right this is an example of exactly what hitchcock's talking about and so there's a sequence that starts at two minutes and kind of wrote it down i am actually checking my notes now for like the first time in for the first time the the entire time we've been talking so it's two minutes 13 seconds right so we start on the ballot paper that tommy and carrie have, have, have ticked the box with that to the devil with false modesty oh i love to that the line to the devil and then what do we cut to we cut to Margaret White chopping up a phallic okay, symbol. Like, with one hand, oh my like, gosh, that scene is bad. Yeah. She's just like, yeah. oh, she's, she's just, just slowly losing it. They Although mentioned... I do love the produce that's on that table. It looks lovely, but that's besides the point. But it's, it's <laughs> clear. Because you're a cottagecore bastard. There is... There is no subtlety to saying to the devil and then cutting to the mad mother chopping no. up a carrot, a big, <laughs> I, a big phallic carrot. It's not a, a Gilligan cut, but it's like there must be a name for yeah. that. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, right, we start on this ballot paper and we pull out as Norma with the bonnet. I bloody I hate I'm Norma. sorry, I fucking hate Norma. I think, sorry, no, sorry, sorry, Paul. I, I just, I'm glad we got to Norma and I'm glad you're with me, Jackie. Norma can fuck off. Norma can fuck, fuck Norma. Fuck Norma. <laughs> We're going to get red hats to say <laughs> yeah. fuck Norma. Selling merch. Yeah, because... But also, maybe that shouldn't be... I think that symbolism has been ruined. That has a bit. <laughs> yeah. Made you look, fuck Norma. Like, Norma's just a fucking... Like, like Chris at least committed to storming out of hit class. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Norma exactly. <laughs> well, Nor- Sorry, Nor- Nor- Norma's that classic character of what's the wee monkey thing in the. We're talking about Star Wars again, but in Return of the Jedi, you know the wee arsehole monkey thing oh, in Jabba's palace? Salacious Crumb. Yeah. yeah. Fucking hell. <laughs> 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 the wee arsehole monkey Yay! thing. Yeah, the arsehole <laughs> monkey thing, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Who's like clearly just going ha 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 to kind of get in with Jabba. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Norma is that character of... She's a henchman. Aha, uh-huh. she's there. She wants to be the pal of the biggest bully so that she's not getting bullied. She's yeah. Gretchen Wieners. Although I, I like Gretchen Although Wieners. Although Gretchen has a fucking... Redemption arc. arc yeah. To a certain degree. This, to some degree. And this all, bitch doesn't. And when... The blood hits, which we'll come to in a second. She's the she's the one that a- oh, she's the, well she's the laugh. She's the one that's actually laughing. Well, she yeah. she what she does is she laughs and then she realizes that nobody else is laughing and she fucking starts hitting them and like yeah. she's the one like tribe 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 that's- and she's like right next to George and Frida who are like yeah. Tommy yeah. Ross's pal and his lovely girlfriend who's like who just, was being so sweet like before. I love your dress where did you get it yeah. oh actually I made it it's like you made that so before I start going on about this fucking sequence yeah, sorry, I think this is interesting no this is interesting because so my interpretation of that sequence is Norma's the one laughing yeah and everyone else is horrified until mm-hmm. we get into the kaleidoscope the, the Carrie's point of view yeah okay and then and then 
they're not all actually laughing at her. No, 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 no. They're not all actually laughing at her. But, but there is this moment where Norma's like, oh, she's going Norma for it. Is. Laugh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. she just hears, like, Carrie just has to hear the one person laughing. Yeah. yeah. And then she gets her and mum in her head saying, of, yeah. she goes yeah. into her own trauma at that yeah. point. Because yes. it shows yeah. you George and Frida. And Miss Collins laughing. And Miss, and Miss yeah. Collins is absolutely she's really, not laughing. Yeah. And George and Frida both look really angry and, like, they're kind of like, it's like a what the fuck kind of face and also yeah. concerned about Tommy like George is trying to get over to Tommy because he's been hit by the bucket yeah. and fallen yeah. down and yeah and then it goes to the kaleidoscope and they're pissing themselves yeah it's good so <sighs> it's tough stuff we start, we, sta- we, we start on the ballot we come out nor- nor- <laughs> we've been trying to start on the ballot for ages we're really sorry <laughs> it's alright right. so we start on the ballot we come out Norma is carrying the ballot uh-huh. and picking up the ballot papers off all the tables. Now, this in itself, just as a tracking shot, is a difficult thing to achieve. Mm-hmm. The orchestration of this. The AD team on this movie must have been absolutely coked out their nuts, right? <laughs> just to get through the shoot of this, because it would be very stressful, right? because there's a lot of bodies moving past the camera. Camera ops got to keep her in focus. Okay, we then... She gets to her boyfriend. What's the boyfriend's name? Freddie. Freddie, right. And they're doing the swap, right. Remember, we're directing the audience's attention, right. The camera tilts down. And she, and she it, kicks uh-huh. it, kicks it under the, yeah. Tilts down and zooms in, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And then comes back up and zooms out as she takes the ballots out of his jacket. It's so yeah. clear. Yeah. Uh-huh. When they do it. It really is. And then follows her to the teacher's table, right. Some more ballots for you. Yeah, and then follows her as she knocks on the steps. Yeah, right, zooming in and out a little bit, which technically, whilst you're moving and you've got all these moving parts, is really difficult. Right, then the camera she walks out of frame and we linger on Travolta and Nancy Allen for a moment. Then we move keeping our tits on, keeping our fucking tits on. (laughs) (laughs) We move, we move past the staging to the backstage, and we see Sue Snell. Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, we've not really spoken much about Sue Snell. It's because I think in the film version, she's more an instigator of the plot rather than someone that's, that we yeah, really spend a lot of time with. Yeah, she's not a fully formed character. And more, we do, we do yeah. see her with her family for a minute. Like she's I, There's actually a scene where she's having dinner with her family and then she's like, what time is it? But that's, I have to go, which is very like... But that's a, it's kind of like a plot thing. Rather yeah, it's than very a, plotty. It, doesn't, it feels very unnecessary. It's like, all right, you could have just... I don't know. Anyway. That, yeah, it's different in the book for that. So... We, by this point, we've been tracking for about a minute, right? And you're going, when is this camera going to cut? And then we crane up, right? So the camera must have been on a crane the entire time for this to be possible. The camera, so a crane is like... So a, it's still going even when Sue Snow enters? Yeah, it's still yeah, going. So, it's still okay, going. Okay, wow. Right? That's, and yeah. then it cranes all the way up the side. We follow the rope. Yeah, yeah. Right? And we go above the staging. It then dollies whilst in a crane to show the bucket and the fella that that announces the winners, mm-hmm. at which point it tilts and zooms over the on in a wide into a zoom on the whole past the whole scene into Tommy and Carrie. As and it doesn't cut until we get to the two shot sort of medium close up of the two of them. And in that sequence, that two minutes, we're seeing the orchestration of everything that's going to happen. That's the Palmer. That's amazing. <laughs> it's really it really is something. Then they go onto the stage and the Pino Donaggio score is is it, it does a lot of the work here. Mm-hmm. The emotions that you feel, I think he he did eight films with De Palma. If you like the score for this, the score for Dress to Kill is well worth finding. 
bizarrely, the score for Carrie is out of print. You can't buy it. Oh, that's mm. weird. It's really annoying. If you want to pay 100 quid for a CD on eBay, you can. But, uh, it's very strange, though. Yeah. So if you see it in a car boot sale, buy it and you know find me send on Twitter. It to, send, it, yeah. send it to Paul. I will pay you £15 for it. <laughs> uh, so they go on the stage and the music's so lush and so beautiful. But then we get the Bernard Herrmann style, the do 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 you know, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, the, the, the real kind of dung, dung suspense stuff. Mm-hmm. Nancy Allen, there's a really interesting extreme close-up on her lips. Having an orgasm. Essentially having an orgasm. There's, yeah. there's a couple of orgasms. We're going to come to one in a minute uh, later on that, that Margaret has. Uh, oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah she fucking brings the house down with she that one. brings the house all the way down <laughs> she's she's having a whale of a time <laughs> uh so when she pulls it and we get the, the the close-up on her lips and she's biting her lips she's also bit. like in the lead-up to that she's like just teasing the rope teasing the rope teasing the rope mm-hmm. and we see her and it cuts between those two things so it's like build up build up build up so and, that and orgasm is not unearned no no <laughs> she puts the work in and it is it's almost it is almost like a, 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 a like an ecstatic kind of release for her mm-hmm. and when the when the, the blood hits and the music you we get a sort of a string sort of it goes and then silence, silence. Yeah. The sound design is impeccable because all we hear is the bucket it's and the, the dripping. Bucket and, and the dripping. Yeah. And, the dripping. I, yeah. and time stops. Again, De Palma is he's firing on all cylinders <laughs> here. He really is doing his job. And it's amazing. It, it's, it's really amazing. And it's only when Norma starts laughing that the sort of diegetic sound. So yeah. we, we call it diegetic and non-diegetic. Uh, diegetic is everything that's in picture. Non-diegetic would be s- s- like sound design, like heartbeats or music that's mm-hmm. not coming from a radio or whatever. Diegetic sound starts to come back in, and then we get into the she's covered in blood, and it's just so fucking horrible mm-hmm. yeah. and heartbreaking. The humiliation, and then it's the humiliation and shock. Yeah, like yeah. A shock yeah. of it because she's she's let her guard down. Yes, because yeah. she worked so hard to not put herself in that position, and then she she then she worked so hard to put herself in that position. Yeah, she it's the first instant in the film where she hasn't, in some even a small way, been expecting to be humiliated at any second. Yeah, yes. she she had yes. she's built trust, mm-hmm. and that trust is shattered mm-hmm. in the most horrific way. It's horrendous yeah. it's utterly yeah. horrendous and and there's no moment like we see it as the audience we we understand what's happening and we see tommy react she doesn't see any of that yeah tommy's like, very angry no. the, we, she doesn't see sue tr- figuring it out and being thrown out she doesn't see tommy going what the fuck yeah. and then get hit by the bucket she all all she knows is betrayal mm-hmm. yes and shock yes it's and she doesn't know at that point that Tommy wasn't in on it either. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's really Karen. tough. Really tough. Now, for some people, De Palma himself included, he might go a wee bit over the top in the next moment. I, I like it, but the split screen stuff... Now, I, I like it too, but I, I yeah. He, he himself has said maybe went a wee bit overboard with that. It maybe wasn't necessary. I, the problem with something like split screen is it draws attention to itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you get into that kind of well, you're the theatre expert, but it's the it's the Brecht thing of revealing the artifice. Yeah, it's like here it is, 
it's yeah you are watching a, a construct yeah. which kind of happens but equally it's done really well and also so in avid or final cut or whatever editing software you want to use i could i could do that now very very easily i have no idea how you would do that in 1976 <laughs> like i would imagine it would be a, a really complex expensive process to do that yeah but i also like it because of the absolute chaos that's happening in the room at that yeah, point yeah i quite like, like it it's it helps me go oh fuck yeah and everything th- is happening I, yeah right now i agree completely i think that's why it works for me it's just how it's the fire and brimstone of it yeah. and th- yeah. this is this is the big horror sequence of the film mm-hmm. really this is this is the moment where carrie the the oppressed becomes the oppressor mm-hmm. yeah and in modern times, I suppose it's hard to watch the film now. When I first saw the film, it was sort of 96, 97. Nowadays, where we have constant stories of high school shootings and things like that, mm-hmm. it becomes a little more uncomfortable. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's it, yes, it's very it's very full on, and and seeing Betty Buckley get it is is painful. Yeah, that's the real stinger. Yeah, know? seeing the wee guy who's a teacher that's in one floor of the cuckoo's nest. Uh, mm-hmm. Getting electrocuted is kind of funny, but seeing Betty Buckley's character, yeah, gets... that's a that's a hard, yeah. yeah. And I think um, Betty Buckley didn't want Miss Collins to die, and I don't want Miss Collins to die. No. Nobody wants Miss Collins to I, die. I don't want she George smokes fags on the premises of school, and yeah, and but Tommy gets... <laughs> she's great. Because <laughs> you mentioned school shootings, yeah, there is another Stephen King book, a short book called Rage. Right, which you can't, which is no longer in print. Right, okay. Because it's about a a boy in high school who is quite ostracized, brings a gun to school, and holds his class hostage. Right. And this, he wrote this before there were any school shootings in the news in America ever. And then there was the first one. I can't remember where it was because I'd actually forgotten about it just till you said school shooting there. But the boy who brought the gun into school and had. had shot people they found rage by stephen king in his locker interesting and as a result of that stephen king had them take it out of print and remove it from the shelves Wow! so you can only buy it. i have a copy that i got it's in like an anthology of books that's got a uh, one called the long walk in it and <gasps> that's one of my favorite it's very very good stories of it's all like time. four yes yeah, he had like four Novellas almost wrote in it. That under Richard Bachman. Mm-hmm. I love it's one of my favorites. Oh, it's a Bachman. Yeah, I think that Rage was a Bachman one as yeah. well. And I read about it and decided to try and find it. And I managed to get it on eBay for like a tenner. Um, so I do have it. And it's very good. But it's that m- mentality that somehow as a writer, he's tapped into teenage rage and the dangers of ostracism and othering, I guess. Not to justify mass murder. No, but like it also anyway. like it's a perfect storm for Carrie as well. Like the teenage rage thing is very real for her, but like it's also she has other layers of complexity on aggravating her teenage rage, which is like no comforting presence at home. Mm-hmm. Carrie has literally nowhere to go. The one of the most heartbreaking things about this movie for me is when she gets home and she washes her I'm going to yeah, I'm going to yeah. cry. She washes herself in the bath and then she she's looking for her mother who she knows probably on some logical level is not going to give her the comfort she needs and finally finds her goes for her and just is like you were right mama 
they all laughed at me and just begs her to hold her. Hold her. That's that's that. Yes, it's that's really, really utterly yeah. devastating. So it's like we've had the prom moment and then we get this. And again, yeah. it, we're building because it's, it's the suspense thing. Going back to the Hitchcock thing is we've already seen her chopping up the phallic uh, willy symbol. Yeah. Phallic willy symbol. Phallic willy symbol. As opposed to the phallic vagina symbol. Uh, the, the the carrot, you know, so we know that she's got the knife. That's been planted. And then as she goes into the bathroom, she's, she, behind, she's the behind the door. I know. She's behind the door. Right next to yeah. the sewing mannequin. So it's like she's kind of like. Yes. Yeah. Dressed, dressed in virginal white. Yeah, you know. and she's like she's there to be seen, but she, you might not see her for a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right. That that's so painful because this is after it's she's really devastating. She's, she's like, mum was right. Is like her takeaway from yeah. the incident. She says something almost to that effect. You were right, Mama. Yeah. 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 This is after she's also killed in an excellent sequence. <laughs> Nancy Allen and John Travolta. Oh yes. Oh my gosh. Who one hundred percent deserved that. Yeah, fuck them. They fuck, were trying. They were trying them. to mow her down as well. Yeah. And the physicality of her when she moves around she, as well, like the physical, the physical yeah, movement like the, of yeah. what Sissy Spacek does for all of this scene, from the point at which the blood hits her, the way she carries herself with her arms down arms, by like yeah. that, mm-hmm. and then she kind of flips round, like w- when you're thin and waif like and covered in blood on a road, it looks better. But like I did sort of flip round there, <laughs> so, or so um, we've heard. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> She just does this thing where she kind of like it does that split screen thing again that you were talking about. So we don't we see the car, we see we see Sissy Spacek in front of it. Yeah, but she, like, her backs to them. Her backs to them, and yeah. then the, then the, it's like a sudden close up onto her, yeah. the yeah, side of her face. I think they've sped up the film. Yeah. To 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 sell it when she turns around and it's almost like a jump 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 like, jump jump. And very then, creepy. And then we mm. see the car fly out of shot, and she's sort of bent over with her arms in the air. It's like very witchy. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, it's her that makes the car blow up as well. Yeah. If the car doesn't blow up by itself. She no, does no, something. She does something else. Uh, and uh, it's uh, like, yeah. And then she goes home to pray for the last time. Okay. When 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 Margaret stabs her after, I mean we've not really touched upon it and we've been going far too long. But the 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 <laughs> lines of dialogue that that woman has, you know, pimples are God's way of chastising you. Uh-huh. Uh, they're just and, and it's the Southern Belle delivery that I love. But when she starts telling the story of the the husband yeah. you know it, you go oh my god this woman has been through some shit yeah and is also fucking mental you know they nearly cut that scene or didn't film it yes mm-hmm. i think she, she kind of really pushed she for pushed it. for it yeah. yeah she was like no 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 this needs to go in it make it makes it make sense yeah no, i mean not make sense make sense but like it gives some context yeah. to the her thinking about things and as an actor, you're just like, oh, Piper. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're going to fight for that Piper. scene. Piper, yeah, you are going to fight for that you're scene. You're not cutting yeah. that scene, buddy. You're like, bitch, this is the only reason I signed on. Yeah. I saw like, him look down at me in that way. Whiskey, <laughs> so, was it Roadhouse just, whiskey on his breath? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God, it's so good. And then after being stabbed, she's so shocked. She yeah. kind of stumbles down the, down the steps. And her mum's coming at her with the big knife mm-hmm. and she gives Margaret what she wants, which is to be a martyr, <gasps> which she's always wanted. And she comes like a banshee. <laughs> she does. You know what I mean? Like She really does. Yeah. It's, a, it's rapturous. You, it could, ra- you, you could use oh. that in an Anne Summers advert if you just took out the knives. Yeah. And that's why Carrie looks so awkward. Yeah. Carrie doesn't look <laughs> Quite awkward. a bit shorter. <laughs> she's not turning away because it's like scary. She's turning away because she's like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, okay. And the best bit 
Oh, well, no, the, the performance, her moaning and writhing and all that's fucking brilliant. But when she finally dies and she tilts her head, tilts her head. she looks like a, a religious icon. She does. She looks like the sort of shit I used to see hanging off the walls in church. Yeah. Well, it's and the, the knives are like in the same placement as they were in St. Sebastian. Correct, yeah. Who is the patron saint of holy death. That was another great Jackie's fact. Very good. Was, I did not know that. Yeah. Well done. He's also the patron saint, the protector. Oh, here from, she goes. Yeah, there's more. <laughs> for another Jackie's fact. <laughs> He's also the protector from bubonic plague. Interesting. The, the patron saint of archers, which feels a bit cruel, and pin makers. And laterally, this is a modern attribution. Athletes, maybe that's just because he's ripped in Sebastian. Yeah, the, the, the I don't pin, know who's de- who decided this. The, the pins <laughs> and the arrows feels like they're trolling Saint Sebastian. <laughs> yeah. Is he also the patron saint of willies and bums? Not because I've seen not that film. According to my sources, okay. um, but you know maybe now because apparently we can give people modern saintages. So sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, cool. But uh, he was the patron saint of holy death because it was Emperor Diocletian who had him killed, but it was Emperor Diocletian who started the Diocletian persecution of Christians. So it was in the Roman Empire when they decided to get rid of all the Christians. It was Diocletian that started it, and that's why the patron saint of holy death. So there were people like because she's got that wee smile. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Carrie's given yeah. her a holy death. She's died. That's really interesting. Fighting for because that that I I've always felt that, mm. but I didn't know that about Saint Sebastian. But it's like it's like I said, she gets what she wants. Yeah. But what she it's a holy she wanted death. to be a martyr. Yeah. Studying is cool. Sometimes I know things. That's really good. She's the best podcast <laughs> co-host ever. Um. Thanks. <laughs> well, you're no, you're just a guest. You're but you're the best guest. guest Although ever. you'll probably be back at this point because I feel are. like you're legitimizing so our podcast. I feel to like, no end. Yeah, you're 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 flinging wine at me. I'm I'm here, I'm here for the I'm here for the ride. All right. So, so um, where are we now? So we're well, near the we're, end. We're at the end. So we are at the end. So. Carrie brings the house then, as we spoke about. Mm-hmm. Now, the ending of the film was it was meant to be a rain of stones like it was in, in the beginning of the film, the scene that they, they ended up cutting. But that didn't work either. So De Palma basically said, well, fuck it, let's just tear it down and burn down the house. Because it, it was a build. The, the mm-hmm. exterior was a build. It was an empty build. I, th- I, I think the scenes inside the house were done on a stage. Right. Uh, I, and it was just a big empty hollow thing. So it was like, fucking burn it. And that's what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it works and then we get the denouement so there there had been horror films with shocking endings before but never right at the end right so Le Diabolique the the uh, Clouseau this is the wine fogging my brain has a very kind of shocking moment towards the end of the film Don't Look Now mm-hmm. scored mm-hmm. by Pino Donaggio has a very shocking moment at the end of the film but not right at the last second. This became a trope, and it kind of originates here. It works beautifully in Carrie. Quite often it works to the detriment of horror films, subsequently, because they felt they had to have that one last scare. So, Friday the 13th. People love those films. Not for me. Friday the 13th is basically a remake of John Carpenter's Halloween with blood and nudity and Carrie's ending. Yeah. It kind of works actually for for well, Friday the Thirteenth. It was 13th. literally made to be that. Like they they, they had no script. Oh but yeah. Anyway, that's another podcast. Uh, yeah. And that I don't think uh, Sean Cunningham has any. No, he's like he, I tried to shame. make a movie that made money about yeah. 
yeah, there's yeah. no shame about that. I, I, we remade Halloween, we stuck Carrie's ending on it. But it became a thing. And the problem is, a lot of the times it kind of undoes the good work of the film. So a good example is A Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. right? Where at the end of the film, the main character has... Spoiler alert for Nightmare on Elm Street. The main character has defeated the monster. And so when the monster comes back at the end of the movie, literally five seconds later, or like a minute later, for that one last scare, it kind of feels cheap. And this is kind of quite common mm-hmm. with the jump scare ending, right? That one last stinger. Here it works beautifully. And it works beautifully because it's not about the monster, I'm doing air quotes, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> coming back. It's about the trauma that it's left Sue with. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's why it works and it doesn't undo anything. In fact, it enriches the rest of the film. And it's, it doesn't exist in the book. Uh, and Stephen King loves this ending. It's also, it's beautifully designed. So we start off in the bedroom. Sue's kind of tossing and turning and her mother goes to answer the phone and then the Pino Donaggio score comes in. You know, that, that really lush, beautiful score comes in and we start in slow motion, right? We're in slow motion. We're in a dream sequence. Mm-hmm. We don't know we're in a dream sequence, but, but we kind of do. The cars go backwards at the back. The cars do go backwards in the back. So he filmed her walking towards the shot where she's walking towards the house was filmed in reverse. Right. Ah, I was wondering about yeah. that. Ah, so you spot you spot yeah, the, the cars car- going yeah, backwards yeah. in the back. I was like, I wondered if that was like an Easter egg or if it was just the way they shot it. No, no, no. So they shot it in reverse. So she's actually walking backwards. Right. To give sense. it that dreamlike thing. Now. Okay. Well, 14, 13, 14, 15 years later, David Lynch directed a sequence in the pilot of Twin Peaks, which is a dream sequence where he filmed everything backwards. Oh, because there's the guy who's... Do you not have to learn in in the Black Lodge? Yes, yes. He, he had to learn his lines backwards, didn't he? And say That's them right. So they could... That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is before... Many years before that. Not for a second I'm saying David Lynch is ripping this off. But anyway... <laughs> And it gives it that kind of strange, unreal quality, right? And then we get to the grave. Now, what they did at the grave, I say the grave, it's it's a, it's a pile of rubble with the with the, the sign, Carrie White, burn in hell, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's lit like daylight. But if you notice, the sky is black. When it, when it looks up, they shot that at night under floodlights to give it, again, it's that unreal, slightly, something's off something's here. Something's off, mm. yeah. Something's off here. Now, it's remembered as a jump scare, right? But actually, it's very slow. It is very slow. Mm-hmm. She kind of, yeah. When she puts that thing... And that's really Sissy, Sissy Spacex. She insisted on being buried to do that. <laughs> she she was really quite adamant that she was going to do it. So that's Sissy Spacex arm that comes out. But it's so shocking because of how gentle the whole thing's been. Mm-hmm. The music, the soft, slow thing. And of course, audiences aren't expecting it. My mum told me a story when they got their first VCR, they'd rented Carrie and her and her brother sat and watched it. This must have been the early 80s. And my uncle Tony got such a fright when the hand came out at the end of the film that he launched his bovril <laughs> into the air. <laughs> Bovril being such a, a moment. Yeah. Staining my, my grandmother's ceiling. Oh, now, no. Now, oh, my, I, my grandmother on my mother's side is my posh granny, right? So, like, you remember Hyacinth Bouquet? Uh huh. That's kind of yeah. the type of character that my, my, my grandmother is. 
And yeah, so he stained her beautiful white ceiling with Bovril and shouted the word fuck at the top of his lungs, <laughs> nearly giving her a heart attack. But anyway, audiences were not expecting this. They jumped out of their skin. And it, it really is effective. But then we cut to her, Priscilla Pointer, yeah. playing oh the mother, trying to wake her up. And that's it's so traumatic. And the sound and the, the score, Donazio's like, really, yeah. really, really going for it. Yeah. And what's really interesting about this is that it mirrors the opening of the film. So the, the film opens with a with a the god's eye view coming down onto Carrie and then we go into a soft slow motion dreamlike sequence that ends on a moment of horror the menstruation and the ganging up and all that and that jolts us out of it the film ends with a slow dreamlike sequence that jolts us with this moment mm. of bloody horror and then what does the camera do at the end pulls away into the sky we end on the on the god's eye view you know, it mirrors the opening of the film. That's amazing. And then we get to the credits and we bring in that Pino Donaggio score back in to just... Oh. Which we need, frankly, because we've all just shat ourselves. We've all just yeah. shat ourselves. Yeah. Can I just We're offer something upset. that's a little bit of a hot take? The the hand coming out doesn't scare me. It makes me really sad for a number of reasons. It's I'm sad for Sue. I'm sad mm-hmm. for her trauma. I'm sad for Carrie, who's probably reaching out and going, help me, pull me out of this hell. That I'm in with my mother. I like that. I've never just, thought of that. Like, like it feels like she's not trying to scare Sue. It's like Sue, you're my one and only ally. Please help me. Mm-hmm. Well, so you get the feeling that Sue will be permanently scarred. By oh, Sue's everything yeah, one hundred percent permanently scarred. Mad because her mum's on the phone with her pal saying like the doctor says she's young enough that she might not like no, she she's not she's like 17 remember, like, she's, she's about to go to she's college going like, to she's remember not, this like... Aye, but listen her mum's absolutely off her banger on like lunchtime gins <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah. her mum doesn't have a fucking clue off her banger on lunchtime gins let's have that on a t-shirt <laughs> Um, okay, so we've reached pretty much the end, so we have to do a couple of things. I feel like shit synopsis is a good one for okay. us to like address. I'm not going to put you on the spot, Jackie. <sighs> I'm never uh, good with so these, actually. What shit. is your shit synopsis for this film, Paul Barry? Well, my shit synopsis for this film would be Roger Daltrey takes Axel Rose to the prom. It doesn't end well. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> my shit synopsis is always carry a tampon. That's just good advice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another thing I would like to point out is some not fun facts. Are PJ Souls, who played Norma, who I hate. Norma, I hate Norma. I don't hate PJ Souls. She was talking about having her eardrum burst when she right. was doing the prom scene. You see it on camera. Yeah. It's the oh, scene where the, where the water hose, there's a tight close-up sort of shoulders up to the tip, top of her head where the water hose blasts her in the face. Yeah. And it, and it, it ruptured her eardrum. Ruptured, ruptured oh, her man. eardrum. So at some point before the end of the podcast, I am going to talk about the international lines of theatrical stage employees and moving picture technicians and how if you are one of those people, you should be part of a union and advocating for safer practices in film. For everyone who works on film, because we don't want burst eardrums and we no, don't we want don't. anybody to be unsafe because we want to continue to make films and therefore continue to have podcasts about them. Yeah. Wow. This is true. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also feel like we should maybe say on a more much more selfish note, um, speaking of film podcasts, we were included in the Film Stories pod website this week as the British Film Podcast of the Week. 
Which we're very happy about. Which we're very happy about. And there were some very nice things written about us by M. McGowan, who hosts the excellent Verbal Diorama. So if you enjoy our podcast, please check out hers and also Film Stories Pod. Yes. Because they're nice to us. They're good eggs and they they know what they're talking about. They do know what they're talking about. So please check them out. Um, we've had an amazing guest. We really have. An incredible guest. I think, Paul, we're going to definitely have you back. Do you have anything you would like to promote or talk about? Where can people find you? How can they follow you on social media? The best place to follow me on social media, I, I've gone all professional all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> no, is probably on Twitter, which you will find me at Paul Barry Films, uh, B-A-R-R-I-E. And there you can see uh, there's a link to my Vimeo page which has some examples I've got an advert coming out next week and yeah I'm just working away on I've got a feature that I'm writing and rather ambitious series of shorts that we're hoping to shoot next year he's very talented please follow him on Twitter he's also a very nice man he's a very nice man Uh, thank you for being here thank you for having me on this has been fun would you come back I'd come back. Well, listen, you've legitimised my <laughs> mentalness, you know. So, yes, it's been fun. It's been nice to hang out with you guys. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, this was Carrie. I feel like we could even do a bonus episode on this immense film. And it's yeah. Dirty Pillows. And it's <laughs> Dirty Pillows. <laughs> oh, Billy. Oh, Billy. Who wants a smack in the dish? <laughs> well, these are godless times. I'll, I'll drink, drink to that. that. <laughs> That was I'll Have What She's Podcasting. Thanks to Chris Gorman for the edit and the sound design. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's Podcasting. If you liked this, you might also enjoy our sister podcast, Persistent and Nasty, which is all about amplifying marginalised voices in film and theatre. Thanks for listening and see you next time.